the lessons for managers of working with a neurodivergent staff member actually apply to all their staff that everybody learns differently. Everybody has different periods of mental anguish in their careers and learning as a manager how to work with that and support people is really, really important. So that's what makes staff stay. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. On today's show, I'm talking to David Smith, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. I've known David for many years. He joined the Royal Australian Navy, inspired by an Australian television drama called Patrol Boat in the 80s. His career saw him as a maritime warfare officer, serving in frigates, patrol boats, and landing craft. But the real conversation in today's podcast is the one we had about social purpose and the business that he now runs with his wife, Anne. In a moment at Oxford University Advanced Management Leadership Program, exploring social purpose and solving wicked problems, there was a moment when David understood that he needed to go further and deeper into the era of neurodiversity in employment. It was a light bulb moment when he clarified his own purpose and became a neurodiversity specialist. As I said, he and his wife, Anne, are in business. They founded the Employee for Ability organisation in 2019 showing organisations that people with ASD diagnosis and other neurodiverse conditions are not disabled, but just different people. They are showing organisations how neurodiversity can be a competitive advantage. I can't wait for you to join us in our conversation. Let's get right in. Well, David Smith, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show, mate. Hi, Martin. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, look... First question I always ask my guests is, how did you end up joining the military or, in your case, the Royal Australian Navy? So, interesting story. So, I grew up in sort of country New South Wales, so a little town called Tarmore, which is southwest of Sydney or southwest of Campbelltown, went to Picton High School. And there was a really what we would consider now a daggy TV show at the time called Patrol Boat, and I love Patrol Boat. So, probably since year seven, at high school, I knew I was going to join the Navy. And at the end of year 10, I actually applied to join the Navy as an apprentice and go to Narimba, and I got accepted. And I was literally about to sign on the dotted line, and I caught up with my grandfather, my mum's dad, and he'd served in the Air Force in World War II, and he convinced me that, look, you're a smart kid, you should join as an officer, don't join as a sailor. And I didn't realise it, but mm-hmm. his father had been a master at arms in World War One. He joined the Royal Navy in, in the sort of late 1800s and served as a boy and came out to Australia mm. in the first fleet. We thought that was pretty amazing. He must be very old, but came out in 1913. And I didn't know that family history. Mm-hmm. So his family were all mm. Royal Navy. And he said, join as an officer, don't join as a sailor. So I went back to year 11 and 12, mm. got a scholarship to go to ADFA and headed off to ADFA in 1987 as a very naive midshipman. So Mm. that was sort of how. And I was pretty lucky to get in, actually, because I I did really well in year 11 and I did nothing in year 12 because I got a scholarship and almost missed out of getting there and didn't do particularly well in year one at ADFA because 
I was still 17 and pretty immature, but it was an interesting start anyway. It's interesting you share that story of your, would it be great-grandfather then, being um, part of the Navy's first fleet? Yeah, great-grandfather, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I found out more about it, yeah, found out more about it later on, yeah. Hmm. So who were the leadership influences, your heroes, growing up? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So it's in, in year, probably in high school, I was in scouting. And I suppose the sort of role models I had were my father, who was in scouting, but also was in the sort of rural fire brigade in this little country town and did a lot of public service. So he was in the fire brigade, was in different clubs and that sort of, I suppose, showed me about what service was. Um, and then his friends in the fire brigade that um, I got to know and saw them as leaders. But probably the scout leaders that I'd worked with were the and the football coaches of playing soccer were the sort of role models that, you know, my understanding of leadership at the time were based on. But I didn't have any perception of leadership at the sort of larger level of, you know, military leaders or business leaders being in a little country town. It was mm. those sort of grassroots leaders that shaped me. Mm. Yeah. It's great to have those influences, isn't it? I, I, I was also involved in scouts and father was involved in service clubs and that model that we present you know as uh, men or women in our families or in our community can often be an influence on a young person yeah look, you know and I've modeled my life similarly that you know I was involved in scouting as an adult when my eldest son wanted to be in cubs and mm-hmm. volunteered and spent six years as a cub and scout leader in Canberra mm been you know football coach and referee and all those types of community service things which really my influence came from my both my parents were involved in that sort of grassroots stuff and clubs mm. in any community don't exist without parents being involved so I think yeah and, and they help you yeah help you get different perspectives of working with all sorts of different families and people mm. Mm. so you graduate from the uh, Defence Force Academy what what happened next? So I did our, went to Sydney, went to Watson's Bay, did the Seaman Officers Application course. My first first experience of going to sea properly, I remember, was 1992 and three of us got on a plane and we flew to Jakarta and we joined HMAS Swan. And to be frank, at the time it was like, oh, my goodness, what have I done? If this is what the Navy's like, I think I've ticked the wrong box because the ship was in lockdown mm-hmm. because of poor behaviour of sailors. There was no leave. Morale was really low. The wardroom wasn't particularly friendly to a sub-lieutenant. It was a real eye-opening example of poor leadership in reflection, but at the time it was just like, oh, my goodness, what have I done? If this is what being a warfare officer or a Navy, you know, a seaman officer is all about, this isn't much fun. Can't believe I've just studied for four years to do this. Mm. So it wasn't, it was an example of leadership that mm. in hindsight could look back and go, okay, that's not how you do it. At the time, it was pretty traumatic to go, wow. And being a junior officer on the training, you're either at the bottom of the pecking order. So you've got to get used to the learning style and how the program works. But I was really lucky after that, my next posting as a trainee was to a patrol boat. And I love that because it sort of a, 
fulfilled the dream from high school of being on a patrol boat and I absolutely loved it. Then I went to, I was on Tobruk and we went to Somalia. I was mm. unlucky in the sense that my phase two time came to an end and I had to come back before we got to Somalia. So I actually came back on Jarvis Bay. So I didn't get to go to Somalia. So I was a bit mm. devastated. Right. Served on JP. Right. Then did our, you know, our next courses. And then my first posting was on Brunei as the officer watch trainee and, but also as a navigator on a small boat. So that was a great job because you had to do everything. And I developed a passion and love for navigation mm. and, yeah, so that's sort of the early phase. Uh, do you want me to keep talking about more, or? Mm-hmm. Oh no, I was. Um, I guess it's interesting to have those. What are those first experiences? I think you know when we, you know, we start out in our careers, whether you're in the military or not, you you have a perception, expectations about what you're going to go into when you get into that first place of work, and something that people call the psychological contract. You have expectations about what it's going to be like, and and then you find that it's not quite lines up and you've got to work through that and and adjust. And I think you go into a, a learning phase there of what aligns with you, what doesn't align with you. And it's a significant part, I think, of anybody's uh, career. Yeah. Look, one of my earliest memories of different leadership was being at Creswell as a brand-new first-year midshipman. And the cultural rules, the, the senior class ate their meals first. And I just thought, mm. that was just so strange. I was like, why are the senior leaders eating before the juniors? Uh, I found that culturally um, a lesson that I've reflected on throughout the rest of my business career of you look after your staff and mm. you look after them first. And, you know, for example, of eating, you, you eat after them to make sure that they've had food. And I remember it thinking as a midshipman, very hungry midshipman at 17, going, wow, there's no food because <laughs> all the senior guys ate. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, or you're left with the worst choice, which yeah. when I went through the Naval College was probably tripe and onions. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, something like Silverside. I've never been able to eat Silverside since, but, yeah. yeah. But mm. different times, different cultures. Yeah, so you missed out on that operational opportunity in Somalia. Where did the where did the rest of your navy career take you? What were the highlights of that? So, came back from JB, did the rest of the course, got my first officer watch ticket on Brunei as a, as the the third officer, so the navigator. Went back to Tobruk as an officer watch and got endorsed on on a larger ship. Mm-hmm. Then a signal came out asking for volunteers for pilots course. So. I thought, why not? By then, I was a junior lieutenant. Mm. I threw my hat in the ring and got through the screening program at Tamworth and, and got to go on pilot's course, which was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Got nine months into the program and had a pretty bad back injury playing sport and and consequently didn't fly particularly well. I had to get lifted out of the aircraft after each flight, so I failed and got scrubbed off the course. Mm. And probably the, the big highlight of that course was doing combat survival course. And that was a really interesting, ex- mm. it was a great experience. I was the, the old person on the course as a 25-year-old and the program was run as a prisoner of war camp and I was the senior uh, ranking officer with all these ADFA Air Force cadets and there was three Navy guys and a couple of Army officers. And I lost 13 kilos in four weeks, so it was pretty pretty full on, but I learned a lot about myself. Wow. 
and about leading mm. leading teams. So as the sort of senior officer of the program, I had to lead this team through the different phases. That was really enjoyable but challenging. Mm. So after pilot's course, I went to Torrens as a APO officer of the watch in anticipation of going on PO course. And I got really involved in the education and learning role, you know, all junior officers have supplementary jobs. So I embraced sort of being the training officer on board and really enjoyed the training aspect of it. And so opted for a posting to Watson as a, in the navigation faculty as a training officer. So taking basically the midshipmen and mm. ad for grads out to sea as their training officer and teaching them the early phases mm. of their seaman officer journey. And I really enjoyed that. I did some post-grad studies mm. And I'd sort of worked out by then that I probably wasn't going to stay in the Navy, that I was going to at least have a, a two-year plan of doing some postgrad studies in organisational change and training and probably have a look at getting out and doing training on the outside and seeing what that looked like. But the posting to Sydney yeah. gave me a bit of a taste of civvy life and I liked it. And my wife and I were dating at the time and it was nice to actually spend time with her. Yes. So basically... It, Almost 11 years, I served 10 years and 11 months and mm-hmm. went on long service leave from Watson in the end of 97. And mm. it took, yeah, that, that's an interesting story of the transition, but mm. transferred to the reserves and did some reserve time since, but that was sort of the end of my short career as 11 years. Yeah. And got out as like a you know mid-level lieutenant. Yeah. I don't think it matters how long the career is, though, because that, that environment shapes us doesn't it with regards to leadership it's those experiences and fascinating just to explore you know you know one of those moments or two where you sort of actually this is leadership and you're maybe you're challenged or maybe you're pressed to to step up or or you find yourself in some responsibility where you've actually know you've got to you know if you don't do something then nobody else will yeah look it was a fantastic management and leadership apprenticeship as a junior officer, I had leadership moments like the the combat survival course as a senior officer. Mm. HM or GPV Arden at the time was our sort of nav training vessel. So going out as the staff captain with the chief who was the master was a really good experience of leading you know a team of sort of fifteen to twenty midshipmen and teaching them what it's like to go to sea. Mm. Were some of the things. I have one story. I don't know if you want me to share about being back on Torrens. And running it aground was uh, (laughs) definitely an experience. (laughs) That's always a good story. That's always a good story. It was a a learning, in hindsight, after the shock of it, it was a a good learning about leadership. So I'd posted back to Watson's Bay after being on Torrance as the specials officer of the watch, and they didn't have a specials officer of the watch. So I got loaned back to Torrance with another navigator from the nav faculty. We were in company with Swan doing long-end training mm. and we were the escort, so we were behind Swan mm-hmm. in King Sound where they have 15, 20-metre tides. And Where's King Sound again? Uh, Northwest WA. Yeah. It's up around Broome Way. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming on watch and the captain said, you know, the briefing, we're going in here. And I was like, seriously, we're going in there? It looks like it's rapids that we were going up a river. So I did the handover and about 45 minutes later, 
we nearly hit Swan because they got stuck in a whirlpool and they're going backwards, even though they're doing 15 knots. Mm. And we manoeuvred and we avoided cutting them in half. It was very close. Then we got to the edge of that whirlpool and we were slightly to starboard of them, to the right of them, and we hit a sandbank. Mm. And in hindsight at the time, we're like, what's just happened? The ship's shuddering and you know shaking really badly. Have we had a total power failure, which we'd had the week before? But no, we'd actually run aground. And mm. the captain, you know, jumped in once we'd pressed all the you know emergency buttons and gone, let the ship know that we were in emergency stations rather than just closed up. Mm. And he powered the ship off. And it mm-hmm. it then once we got ourselves safe and went to anchor, every time there was a revolution of the shaft, the back end of the ship wiggled all the way back at three knots back to Sterling. And the lesson really from a leadership perspective was he took it. He was an ex-submariner. It was a submariner, but CO. He was so stoic and positive to the whole crew, even though he was probably facing the end of his career. Mm-hmm. And the navigators that had organised the training went running for cover. They were looking for every excuse under the sun. And, yeah, so the lesson for me was admiring his professionalism and ability to stay in control for the weeks and weeks after as he's facing the most stressful period probably of his naval career. Yeah. Luckily for me, I wasn't court-martialed because I didn't – I was off the watch, not navigator. So the navigator and the captain got court-martialed and I was a witness. But mm. if we hit Swan, I would have been court-martialed. So as part of the bridge team, it was pretty confronting. But yes, an interesting lesson anyway. Those moments – uh, a test, aren't they, in terms of your responses to that and whether you react or, or choose a response. And I think that's the thing about leadership and when you've got a responsibility for a group of people, whether you're in the command of a ship or, or something else, whether you're the CEO of an organisation, ultimately the buck stops with you and and you take on that. It, what you do in that moment really matters. Yeah, it was, well, for me it was I stayed in touch with you know, Commander Earl and and he was a referee for me for the next sort of probably 10 years of my post-Navy career. Mm. And he was a good guy. We stayed in touch mm. until he, he passed away from cancer at an early age. But mm. he was a, a really good role model from that time sort of onwards. And he was a great CEO and leader during our time on board. I really looked up to him because he was just calm. He was professionalism. Mm. You know, he was very calm. He was considered and there was another – I had another boss like him in the civilian job who was very similar, who very calm, very professional, pushed me but was there to listen and guide. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, certainly I'm hearing, David, that that really shaped your own philosophy around leadership. You said you transitioned after just over 10 years' service. What was that like? That was really challenging. I kept a manila folder back then – you know, the good jobs in Sydney were advertised in the Sydney Morning Herald. And so I used to buy two copies of the paper every morning and I'd cut out, you know, the job ads and I'd glue them to a sheet of paper and then I'd write my letter and call the recruitment company. And I had to buy two copies because there were sometimes jobs on the second page that you'd cut out. So <laughs> I kept this manila folder and I had 50 job ads in it before I got my first interview. Mm. So it was a bit of a challenge and I, I use that reflection now as a sort of career coaching and recruitment specialist 
It was about perseverance. That's like, okay, I am one step closer to getting a job. My job at the moment, I was on long service leave, was to get a job. And, or I was a professional athlete. I wasn't sure because I used to go to the gym every day. I used to joke with the coach that I was a professional athlete because I didn't really have a job. I was just going to the gym two times a day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. But my job was to get a job. And I mm-hmm. kept getting failure after failure. And I was like, no, I'm one step closer to my job. That was not the company for me. And mm. I had to learn to talk civilian. So I had to learn how to communicate, not as a Navy officer, but as a HR and training specialist, which is what I'd become through working at Watson's Bay and the training programs that I was working on. And eventually I got a job with a US tech firm called Sylvan Learning Systems, who are a NASDAQ listed firm. And my boss had been an ex-US Navy officer and he was based in Baltimore. I was the operations manager for Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific. So I got this cracking job, but it took you know a good three, four months of hard work to get it. And it was a really, really interesting job that I, after nine months working for them, I got sort of seconded and promoted to country manager in India. So I ended up working in India for seven, eight months. And I took that because there was a, a really nice bonus attached to it and my wife and I were about to get married. So that bonus helped pay for our wedding. But it was a reflection of, I left the Navy because I was never home. Why am I living in India <laughs> doing the same thing? Okay, I'm living in a hotel. but So I ended up resigning to come home because I was away again all the time and got a job with uh, SMS Consulting, oh, yeah. which I mm-hmm. think you, you'd know who they are. Yeah. I worked with them in Brisbane and a girlfriend of my wife got me the interview and I had no intention of moving to Brisbane, but my wife really wanted to move to Brisbane. So she'll probably hear this now and, and laugh, but mm-hmm. I had no intention of applying for jobs in Brisbane, but I got this interview, had the interview in Sydney at the Qantas Lounge and got the job and it paid really well. So I was like, okay, I guess we're moving to Brisbane and didn't really know what a management consultant was, but did project management and was naive or, I don't know, maybe smart enough to go fake it till you make it mm-hmm. and delivered as a project manager and org change manager because that's what my master's did, was in organisational change. Did that for a couple of years and again I was travelling to Rockhampton every week and our first son was born and I was like, what am I doing? I left mm. you know, the Navy because I was never home. I left the company because I was away all the time and here I am, unhappy wife in Brisbane and, Met two guys in Brisbane, one was Stuart Robert, who was a classmate at ADFA, and Andrew Chandler, who was at SMS around the same time. And they just started a firm called GMT, and they made me an offer, and I decided to join them. And it literally was three guys and a business card, Mm -hmm. and we had an idea. And it was similar work to what we did at at SMS, was working on projects ourselves, with associates and we built the business at the end of sort of Y2K and the GST project phase. Mm-hmm. Moved to Canberra as a partner in the business in 2003 for four years and you know, 19 years later we're still here in Canberra. Yeah, Sold that business in 2011 and went to a big competitor as a exec in a recruitment company called mm. People Bank. Yeah, well, it's interesting how our paths are shaped by sort of those divine moments, so to speak, you know, a crossroads and, and you know, your priority actually, what I heard was a, a priority around family and actually wanted to be present 
as a husband and, a, and as a father. So, you know, sometimes we sometimes we'll make sacrifice around that stuff and it doesn't always pay off in the long term. And sometimes it does. Yeah, I think, look, that was definitely the, the thought process, but my wife definitely has sacrificed more in terms of career than I ever did. And, mm. you know, like she, you know, especially moving to Canberra, that was, she did that to support me. Mm. So I, I certainly got the better end of the, the stick in terms of family and career balance. But being present as a parent was really important in the, when the kids were young. Don't know in hindsight whether I did it as well as I should have, but especially being a small business owner, you, know, you work really long hours and we had three kids in three and a half years. So we had all these little kids and it was chaos when I'd come home and I'd be coming home late. So I certainly had a very supportive partner in those years. Mm. And then starting our, our latest business in 2019 was actually her pushing me to say, mm. you know, you've got an idea, you're very passionate about what you're doing. You don't particularly love your job. So why don't you do something about it? Mm. So anyway, it's, we're, we've made a very good team. Well, it's good to have people around you, whether it's a spouse or a life partner or somebody like that, that you know can hold that mirror up and say, hey, this is what you're really passionate about and I'm here to support. Yeah. Have you found the balance in this new business? I really want to talk about the new business moment. But have you found that balance as, yeah. with yourself and Anne? I think we have. Mm. We, like not many people get to do, we actually work together. So literally behind me is her desk and... Mm. We work, you know, a metre and a half apart. Often I'm out of the office seeing clients or working with staff or, you know, presenting to corporate companies, uh, to organisations and government. But mm. we work very closely together and, and it's a healthy, respectful relationship that we're, we're peers and we get on, but we're good at bouncing ideas off each other. But mm. we've had to make it work because I think early phases of trying to work out, well, I brought her into the business at the end of last financial year and handed over a whole heap of stuff that I wasn't very good at, but she was good at. Mm. And that handover has meant the business is sort of tripled in size. But still trying to work out roles and responsibilities as equals and as, as partners, mm. you know, husband and wife partners is very hard and mm-hmm. we've done it pretty well. So I think I've been lucky. So... David, any thoughts about what the secret sauce is to that, about being uh, partners in life as well as in business? <laughs> happy wife, happy life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's about listening to each other and mm. listening to what's, what's annoying her and being respectful and listening, not trying to solve it like a lot of guys try and do is, half listen and try and solve the problem. It's no, shut up and listen Yes, and let them have their say. And then if there's an opportunity to respond, sometimes they just want to vent because when you're in small business, sometimes you need some of the bounce ideas off or if something's annoyed you, you've got no one to to vent to, Mm. to put it into perspective. But if you're working together, then they become that person to, to share you know, the stresses and then put it into perspective and, and move forward and make decisions. But that's probably some of the clues. But Yeah. And it takes work, doesn't it? It's a constant. It does. It's a constant thing. But, mm. yeah, so starting this business was 
it was following our passion. So I, we've got three kids. Eldest Darcy's nearly 21. Maddie's Madeline's 19. And Ollie is our youngest. He's um, 17 and year 12, and he's on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, he got diagnosed when he was about four. And we went through the roller coaster emotion. I think all families do when you're told there's something wrong with your son. That you know, well, what does this mean for him, for our family? And I was at People Bank, which is Australia's largest tech recruitment firm, managing their federal government business. And I'd actually met a family in about 2015 who had a trans daughter who was on the spectrum and had really debilitating anxiety. And they'd hacked the daughter hacked into the Minecraft server because they love Minecraft just to see how things worked and just played with it and gave themselves things that you, you get in Minecraft and two weeks later Minecraft banned them for a year and then a week later they hacked back in and overrode their band and kept playing and the mum's telling me the story and I'm thinking, wow, they've got really good hacking skills but as a 19-year-old I couldn't get them employed because they're anxiety was so strong that they wouldn't go to an interview with the employers that we'd lined up. And I just thought, what a waste that this young kid has awesome skills that companies want, but I can't get them through an interview process. A couple of months later, I got, I was lucky I went to the Oxford Advanced Management Leadership Program, and that was sort of a dream come true. It was something I'd always wanted to do, was that type of leadership learning. And on that program, it makes senior execs think about what is your social purpose and how can you solve wicked problems in the world? And I went over there thinking about recruitment, but halfway through it, there was a, like a light bulb went off in my head. It was like an aha moment of my son's autistic. I'm in recruitment. A wicked problem is that people on the autism spectrum really struggle to get employed. They're six times more likely to be unemployed than people with other types of disability. Mm. So I, I wrote a bit of a paper about it and and talked to some classmates. One of them was the CEO of Defence and there was a, some other Australians on the course and basically came back and started doing some research about, well, who's doing this stuff? Went to Griffith Uni and did some postgrad studies over the next couple of years on autism and then thought, this is what I want to do. Mm. This is my purpose. This is what I've been put on earth to do, really. It's, mm. And being very privileged in the sense that we're in a position that I could follow my purpose. Mm. And my wife sort of said, you hate your job or you're miserable in your job. Either go and follow your purpose or shut up. (laughs) So I went, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to leave and follow and implement this sense of purpose I've got. So in 2019, we started Employ for Ability. Mm -hmm. And so three years later, we've, we've got staff member in Sydney. We're in Canberra. We've got 18 staff. We won the Telstra Best of Business Awards for the ACT for building communities last year. But more importantly, we, we've placed about now 140 people into meaningful work. And mm. in Australia, there's the disability employment system that the government funds. And they place less than 7.5% of their autistic candidates into meaningful work. Mm-hmm. And most of them last less than six months. And what we've achieved is that 80% of our clients gain employment in six the first six months and after 12 months working there 95 percent of them are still there many of them in higher roles so our model's been phenomenally successful of getting people transitioning into work and showing organizations that you know neurodivergent talent 
are not disabled, but they've got unique skills that organisations should consider. Mm. And in Australia right now, we've got a skill shortage. So excluding a, a group of people isn't good for business, especially when they have longevity and they contribute really well. So it's it's been a, a really good business journey of there is a massive demand for what we do and following your sense of purpose makes you not think that work, it's not work every day. It's just very yeah. enjoyable. It's, mm. it's very personally, emotionally rewarding. Mm. What a great story, David. And I was aware of your sort of that success, but great to get the backstory. And yeah, what are the challenges then you see on the sort of employer side? What are employers, or, you know, where the leader managers and need to actually be thinking about when it comes to neurodiversity in there and, I want to make sure I've used the right word here, but it's um, valuing that, I think is probably what I'm trying to say, is um, valuing that as, a, as an opportunity. Yeah. So I think the challenge for, for organisations for a long time has been that when we see disability, we it, there's a stereotype. So if you see someone in a wheelchair, you know what you're dealing with. If you see someone with a cane or a, a guide dog, you know to make reasonable adjustments that they're vision impaired mm. or if they're deaf because they're signing, you can tell somebody has a disability. And you know, if somebody has Down syndrome or an intellectual disability, often you can tell by looking. But with psychosocial disability, we don't talk about it in, a, in society very often. And you know, in the military also was something you didn't talk about your feelings and the stresses. And I know we've learned a lot over the last 20 years with the change of tempo, but PTSD, depression, anxiety, you know, bipolar disorder, those types of conditions are taboo to talk about often. And we're slowly as a society learning to accept those conditions in business and make reasonable adjustments because mm. you know, 85% of Australians at some stage in their life are going to experience a psychosocial disability, whether it's anxiety and depression through grief, the anxiety and depression of going through divorce and marriage challenges or trauma associated with friends passing, we all experience these traumatic things. And there is better supports than there used to be, but there's still not enough. And autism to a degree reflects some of those traumas. Like a lot of people with autism also have anxiety and depression um, and PTSD because of being bullied or having traumatic experiences. So it teaches organisations about those. And the lessons for managers of working with a neurodivergent staff member actually apply to all their staff that, you know, everybody learns differently. Everybody has different periods of mm. mental anguish in their careers and learning as a manager how to work with that and support people is really, really important. So that's what makes staff stay. If you as a manager don't learn how to manage your staff and look after their well-being. Mm. It's the number one reason why staff leave organisations is they don't get along with their boss. Mm. So I think the role of a leader is to support your staff and, and help them through good and bad mm. and be there for them so that they can achieve the results you need in your business. Yeah. So there's lots of lessons that apply across all you know, parts of a business by understanding autism and neurodiversity. Mm. Yeah, it sounded like, um, you know, it's sort of, there's almost a fundamental principles here that have just been applied with another level and another level of consciousness about actually um, the connection I need to build with this person, recognising that they are maybe different to me. 
Yeah, and and, and like I say, the most family or most organisations and families is that autism specifically is not a disability. Um, it, it's a it's a different ability, and it, it comes from in society when we see somebody who has a disability, we use the medical model of disability. And the medical model is that, you know, we're trying to find a cure to, to help that person make them less disabled. Mm. And it sort of works with things you can cure, like a broken leg. Um, it doesn't work for conditions that are lifelong. So there's another model called the social model of disability, which we've sort of adopted um, in, in business. You know, we've got ramps, we've got um, doorways, and we've got amenities for people that are in wheelchairs. But we haven't really learned to adopt it for disability you can't see, so hidden disability. And the social model is about removing barriers so that people can participate and um, contribute to society. And mm. the barriers for autism are hard to, for organisations to understand and, and adopt, but it's learning that autism is a different communication ability, that they communicate differently, maybe mm. literally, um, but it's a communication difference. So... You know, instead of doing interviews as the only recruitment pathway, it might be um, using assessment centres or doing um, practical testing so, or giving them an assignment. You've got, you know, half a day, go away and do this piece of work and present it back to me is a much better assessment tool than, you know, two 30-minute interviews uh, for someone on the spectrum. Yeah. Are you learning, I mean, having had a background in recruiting and placement of people, uh, do you think we need to change the nature of, of how we recruit full stop? I mean, you're talking about this for a particular a group of people, but do you think that actually we're, our approach to recruiting is actually needs a, a, a sort of a, a scrub? I think so. Look, it's a bit heretic for me, you know, 23 years in recruitment to say that interviews aren't very effective, but there's lots of academic literature that shows that interviews by themselves are not very effective. And the concept of interviewing is really a very old one that you know, it was designed in really in the Second World War to mass screen people. Mm. And, you know, we most organisations now use other things like psychometric testing, you know, peer interviews, different sort of approaches on it. But we use interviews as leaders because it's a cost-effective, time-effective mechanism but we don't get very good results so in an environment now where we've got a massive skill shortage where candidates have actually more control and choice than the organization does i think you've got to be innovative to come up with ways to convince people to work with you as much as you're selecting them yeah and assessment style processes are pretty good that you can give them a project or a, or a quiz to understand them and interviews have their place in the puzzle but they, they shouldn't be the only mechanism and definitely for autism and people with ADHD or other neurodivergent conditions they're traumatic they're horrendously traumatic for them so they're actually they are disabling for that cohort but for some people especially in roles where communication skills are important it has to be a component but it definitely shouldn't be the main process. Yeah, I love your work, David. It's uh, great to hear. I think we could probably unpack that so many more ways. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to sort of, sort of, you know, with all that experience and a diverse career, both in the military and in corporate, you know, what would you advice would you give leaders of today? What do they need to pay more attention to? 
Probably, yeah. Some my thinking is, you know, leaders today, you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. So I was really successful in my last few leadership roles by hiring really smart people and following the sort of the concepts from the Jim Collins Good to Great book of, you know, first who, then what. So hiring really great people who in most cases were much better than me at recruitment and had complementary skills or, you know, covered off my areas of weakness. And I was really happy if they were way smarter than me or they were much better than me at doing things because they could help us achieve our results together. So then my role is, as a leader is to be the glue to bring them all together and focus on, on the goal. So for new leaders or people moving into leadership roles, it's more important that you're bringing the team together and pointing them in the right direction than being the subject matter expert or the, you know, the cleverest person in the room. That's probably my biggest piece of advice. Mm, yeah. Well, look, my sense is that you sound like you're a person that likes to have resources and, and you're a better lifelong learner. Has, have there been resources that have helped you along the way that, you know, help with that growth mindset you clearly have? Yeah, look, um, I, I came across the, the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, in it's like 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. It was fairly early in, in the journey and reflecting on, you know, one of his key concepts is a level five leader. So someone who's humble but also very, very focused on results and, and getting things done and holding very high values to what I'm trying to say. So very high standards. So, and I sort of reflected on me going, okay, my leadership journey has been like I reflected as a midshipman was you know, looking after your staff rather than, or your team rather than being at the front of the line to eat first. It's, you know, you don't have to be out the front shouting, I'm the leader. A humble leader that looks after their team can be very effective, mm. but you've got to have a real strong focus on what the mission is, what we're trying to achieve and have very high standards that you hold people to. Mm. So to me, that book, Good to Great, sort of has been, you know, we've implemented it in the business I owned before People Bank. It just strangely, coincidentally, the CEO of People Bank brought that out at a, at a leadership training session. I'm going, oh, okay, I know this book. <laughs> and we adopted it as a sort of a philosophy at People Bank. And it still holds true today, you know, 20 odd years later in employee for ability that those types of you know, sustainable long term businesses have good leaders, fantastic staff, be very aware of what you know, you're good at as a business. So my business, we're very good at working with people on the autism spectrum and neurodiverse conditions. We're not so good at working with people with an intellectual disability. So mm. being honest with ourselves to not be all things to all people, mm. setting big, hairy, audacious goals of what we're trying to achieve and then shooting the lights out and doing it have been sort of the tenets of that book, but how I've implemented businesses over the last 20 years. And mm. we've had very good success. Well, I've had good success in my career by following those types of philosophies. Now, I'm not saying I'm a very, I'm a level five leader. It's something to aspire to. Mm. Certainly had days where I didn't live up to that goal, but that's part of the journey is, you know, putting a mirror up and looking at yourself to go, that's not your best day. What did you do wrong? <laughs> 
and being honest with yourself is part of the, the learning. Doing the Oxford Advanced Management Leadership Program was life-changing. It really made me focus on a sense of purpose and taking me on this journey. But it was a really good learning experience for the three weeks of the program. Mm. So having time out of doing your day-to-day to actually go and learn and reflect on leaderships a very important I think aspect of being a leader and doing those sort of exec leadership programs is a time effective. It might not be cost effective, but time effective way to do it because you get so busy. Yeah. Well, David, I reckon we could unpack a lot, lot more about your leadership journey and maybe we'll do that another time. But for today, I, yeah. I just want to thank you so much for giving up your time to be on the podcast. We're going to finish up with some rapid fire questions. As I say to people, they don't necessarily have to be rapid fire answers. Yeah. So first question Fill in the blank. Leadership is? So leadership's the ability to use influence to fulfil the organisation's purpose. Cool. You kind of mentioned one book already. Yeah, it might be the book, but what's your go-to book on leadership? Look, it is. It's the Jim Collins Good to Great. Yeah. I use it a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what, I, it, it comes up probably in, since we do the podcast, it probably comes up as the number one book for people actually at the moment. So the next question, wish I had known blank earlier in my career. Oh, I wish I'd known about mentoring earlier in my career. And in the Navy in the, in the 80s and 90s, we didn't do mentoring. And it wasn't until really about 15 years ago that I had a mentor who could sit me down and talk about, well, where's your career going? And I'd never really thought about it. It had always been a bit of a goal that I'd had and I'd follow through it myself, but I didn't have somebody I could go and talk to. Mm. So having mentors and feeling safe to ask people for help or for an opinion mm. to go, look, I'm not really sure about this. Can, can you give me some advice is not a weakness. It's actually a really smart thing to do. And mm. I think... Those who have probably had longer careers in, in the Navy or in other corporates have probably been more successful earlier in their careers because they had mentors. And mm. for me, it took me until my sort of late 30s to work at that. Yeah, very cool. Next question, you get a call from a team member, a crisis has just occurred in your company, organisation. What are your first words to that person? Probably, um, are you okay or safe? You know, is everyone else okay and safe? So worrying about mm. people's welfare and then we'll sort out whatever it is that's going wrong. Mm. But making sure that that person's okay and safe is probably the most important thing, especially from a mental health perspective. Mm. Last question, uh, the go-to quote on leadership that's been most influential on your leadership style. Great vision without great, great people is irrelevant. Mm. So for me, which, you know, comes from Jim Collins, but... For me, it's been a focus of my career is we've got to know where we're going. If I've got good people around me and we're just doing the day-to-day, then we don't achieve great results. So we've got to have a goal we're aspiring to and it needs to be a big, hairy, audacious goal to achieve great results. And if you don't have a goal, you're just marking time. So you're not going to achieve great results if you don't have a plan and a goal to get there. Yeah. Well, great advice. Um, David, thank you so much for giving up your time today to be on the podcast. And I want to congratulate you on the success with employability so far. It sounds like it's on a great trajectory with you and Anne at the, at the helm and look forward to your continued success. And 
you know, maybe the opportunity to come back down somewhere down the future track and, and share some of the success and what else you've learned, I guess, in terms of leadership with regards to that inclusion bit, which is so important. And we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes about uh, your organisation because, as you said, you know, was it one in six, one in seven people in Australia are probably have some neurodiversity yeah. and it would be worth having some information about that as well. Thanks for the opportunity, Martin. It was good talking to you and I look forward to catching up in the future. Excellent. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.